Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 37 in the book of Hebrews titled, Strive for Holiness, Without Which No One Will See the Lord, where we discuss Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 through 17. I am Joel Harford, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, we are continuing to move through the book of Hebrews, and we just finished this exhortation to run the race with endurance that is set before us. We read the exhortation to bear under the fatherly discipline well and to receive it as children because our Father loves us. What do we see here in verses 14 through 17? Yeah, I really think Hebrews 12, 14, one of the, one of the most vital uh, and important verses in the Bible for um, progressive holiness and the essential nature of growth in holiness so that if it's not happening, you're not going to heaven. And it's taught in other places. We've talked about it a number of times in these podcasts. But here we have one verse that talks about a holiness you need to strive after, a holiness you need to press after and make an effort for. And if you don't have it, you're not going to see the Lord. You're not going to go to heaven. So this is, this is pretty important. It's part of that the overall three-part outline we have of the book of Hebrews where a superior mediator, Jesus, uh, brings us a superior covenant, the new covenant, resulting in a superior life. And one of the aspects of that superior life will be a practical daily holiness. Hmm. Well, for the sake of our audience, I'm going to read verses 14 through 17. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So my first question to you, Andy, relates to verse 14, the beginning. How does this relate to the immediately preceding section where the author told them to lift up their drooping hands and strengthen their weak knees and make these straight paths for their feet so that they would not be, you know, be lame, but they would be healed. Right. So we want to go back, I think, to the beginning of the chapter, um, which talks about a race that we are to run, a race that's marked out in front of us. And we're to run this race with endurance. We're to lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily entangles and run this race with endurance. And that race is Christ, but it's also the Christian life, a life of holiness. And so we're supposed to be running this race. And so the idea here is having been justified by faith in Christ, all of our sins forgiven, we now have a race to run. We've got a journey to travel. We need to follow the way and the truth and the life, Jesus, uh, to the Father in heaven. So we've got a a road to run. And and part of that life is going to be a life of uh, being disciplined for our sins. The Father will not just give us over to our sin, but he's going to discipline us. He's going to chastise us when we need it. And in any case, we need to uh, fight this good fight of, of faith and put sin to death by the power of the Spirit. We need to do this and do it in a community setting. We're supposed to look around horizontally. We're supposed to look around at the brothers and sisters and see what's going on in their lives and see if anyone's drooping or flagging in their race and, and come over and prop them up and say, hey, let's get going. You know, uh, Prop up or strengthen those feeble arms and weak knees as we run this race. And so we go from that into this exhortation toward holiness. Right. Now, this word that the English translates to strive, he says strive 
for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So we're going to strive for peace and holiness. What does this verb teach us about the Christian life? Well, it's an energetic pursuit that we're looking uh, at here. We could imagine almost like uh, hunting something down or pursuing something vigorously, like you're tracking something. Uh, in any case, it's definitely an, an energetic verb of effort and activity. So you're striving after something. And there are two things in the verse. Uh, the first is peace with all people, just kind of a universal peaceful relationship that could be within the church or it could be with the surrounding community, even with non-Christians. Strive for peace with people on the outside could be. And we could go back and forth at that. But then we've got the same verb, strive, because the word and is between the two things. Strive for A and then B. So we could remove A for a moment and just keep it simple. Strive for holiness without which no one will see the, see the Lord. Now, what does that tell me about salvation? It tells me that my personal effort is part of my salvation. And we need to understand that properly. We know that our personal effort is no part of our justification. But as we've said time and time again, salvation's bigger than justification. There's a part of salvation, sanctification, which I must strive. And that's what we're talking about here. And the author says, you know, for this holiness without which no one will see the Lord. What kind of holiness is this? It's a holiness you strive after. So it's not the imputed holiness of Christ. Uh, that's given wholesale, 100%, credited to your account, the perfect righteousness of Jesus. That's justification. This is talking about, about the holiness that comes by habit, the holiness that comes by effort, joint effort, between us and the Holy Spirit. So we strive and the Holy Spirit strives with us and he works in us and we develop habits as it's discussed very plainly in Romans 6 through 8, really those three chapters are the key chapters in the New Testament on sanctification. So we're going to have a kind of holiness after which we have to strive by building up habits just like we used to do habits of wickedness leading to ever-increasing wickedness. So in the same way, we're going to develop new habits, habits of holiness or righteousness leading to holiness. So there's a sense of, of effort, striving that leads to holiness. That's the holiness the author's talking about here. And he's saying, without it, you're not going to see the Lord. So if I were to put this in different language, maybe I could say, strive for progress and sanctification. Without such progress, you will not see the Lord. Absolutely. Would that be fair? Absolutely. Now, we need to understand this so clearly. This is, this is vital. This is maybe one of the most important doctrines there is in the, in the Bible. And that is salvation, the doctrine of salvation, what theologians call soteriology, the, the study of salvation, that we understand that it comes to us in stages and that the rules of the game, so to speak, the rules of the stages are different from each other. And so with justification, it is not by our works, but by Christ's work and by faith in Christ's work that we are justified. Our works are not welcome. They are actually rejected vigorously. We cannot use our works to pay for our sins. But having said that, then we've got the second stage of sanctification. And in that, we are striving. Now, we need to understand our standing is not based on our progress. You don't have a better and better standing with God because we're making more and more progress in sanctification. That's not true. Our standing with God is all Christ. It's all in Christ. It's justification. But the progress in holiness is essential to the salvation, and it vindicates or proves the reality of justification by faith. If there is no progress in holiness, there has been no justification.
which is why he would say no one will see the Lord, because if there's been no justification, then there is no eternal life. Yeah, to see the Lord here, I think, um, you know, there are different things you could do. You could make it kind of pietistic, spiritualistic, you know, we're not going to see the Lord at work in our lives or something like that. I don't know. What do you think about that? I I think he's talking about see the Lord, you know, when we see him face to face, we're going to be like him because we'll see him as he is. I think he's talking about that. Yeah, I think seeing it that way will not do do you any harm as long as you understand soteriology, the salvation as we've been discussing it here plainly, if you understand it that way understanding that this is essential to going to heaven. And I think another way to look at it is uh, just what we learned in Romans 8, 13 and 14. And there it says, the one, um, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Uh, But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the children of God. And so putting the two concepts together, Romans 8 and um, Hebrews Uh, 12 here, what we would want to say is that to see the Lord in Hebrews 12, 14 is the same as to live eternally. That means to go to heaven. So uh, yeah, we're going to see him face to face. That's heaven, but you won't see his face. Um, And and think about that. Think about hell being the place where you do not see the face of the Lord. You don't see his face. His face is turned away from you. And the face then represents his favorable disposition, his pleased, happy disposition toward you. So let's say we have some listeners who are hearing this podcast and they're told that they need this energetic striving for holiness. And we're told that without this, you're not going to see the Lord. Give us some pointers on things we can do, how to apply our energy towards striving for holiness and striving for sanctification. Yeah, before I do that, let me me also root it in another passage very well known on this, uh, which says in Philippians chapter 2, um, so as you've always obeyed, not only my absence or presence, now much more my absence, continue to continue to obey, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to do according to his good purpose. So that would be an absolute partner verse for this. So the idea is we are going to work out our salvation with God working in us. We'll give him the first place. The initiative always belongs to God and to the Holy Spirit. So he initiates and we respond and he's initiating concerning holiness. He's initiating concerning actual uh, putting sin to death and holiness, etc. So, And then we respond and we work. So the way I would understand this practically then um, would be this, that we need to see where the Holy Spirit's targeting sin in our lives. He's not shown us everything because we'd be overwhelmed, but he shows us many things. And there's whole areas of our lives, in our marriage, parenting, in our prayer life, our financial life, our church life, uh, work life, entertainment life, everything. And he's going to zero in on some things that he's displeased with, things that grieve him or, or are sinful and not conform to Christ. And he's going to target those and he's going to recruit you and persuade you and convict you to act on those things. And your job then is to put them to death. We are called on in Romans 8 to mortify the deeds of the flesh. So what that means is we mortify by resisting temptations in those areas. Whenever the temptation comes, we need to kill it and put it to death. And so the more progressively that we do that, the holier and holier we're going to get. We're going to see victory in certain areas, habit patterns that are changing. So it's very practical. It's warfare that we're talking about here. Verse 15 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. There's a couple things in here. I want to ask you about the first section, the see to it that no one fails. So there's a corporate aspect to this. 
What does this teach us about how we relate to each other in the church? Well, we are personally to strive after holiness, and without holiness, we're not going to see God. But here it's saying, lift your eyes off yourself, too. Help your brothers and sisters to strive after holiness, too, just like we saw back in chapter 3, where uh, it's very, very plain that we are to look after our brothers and sisters and, and see that no one develops a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But we're to encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of us may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Really the same kind of concept here. So see to it in your local church, in your group of Christians, see to it that none of you corporately misses the grace of God. So how would someone do that? It seems like a, a challenge too great for someone to do because only, only God can do this. But how, how would one you know, seek to obey this and fulfill God's calling on their life to bless other people in, in this overseer role? Sure. I guess what I would say is we need to try to understand as best we can what verse 15 is saying. What does it mean to miss the grace of God? And then we can do what it tells us to do in reference to that. So let's just stick to that. And to me, maybe uh, we would think about avenues of grace or means of grace that Puritans would talk about. There are certain ways by which God ministers grace to our souls, the grace by which we're saved. The a whole salvation process, including sanctification. It's, it's sanctification by grace. So there's going to be means of grace. So to miss the grace of God might be to cut yourself off from the means of grace. Um, so that would be public worship, corporate worship, uh, daily spiritual disciplines, your daily quiet time, you know, your daily uh, uh, prayer time. Uh, so start with that and then go from that to corporate worship. So are they attending worship or have they forsaken the assembling of, the, of themselves with other Christians? Uh, the Lord's Supper, um, the ordinances, Lord's Supper and baptism are means of grace. Uh, good, robust Christian fellowship are means of grace. So if you see somebody developing loner tendencies, they're starting to withdraw, right? They're not coming to worship as much. They're pulling back. They don't, they don't seem to be as interested in not returning your calls. Then be alarmed and go after that person. Shepherd them. Uh, the elders who we're going to talk about next chapter, you know, which um, are overseers and they have to give an account uh, for those that they're, they're watching over. It actually literally in the Greek says that they lose sleep over your souls. And so it's the idea of, of a diligent shepherding. But we can do that for each other. So see to it that no one misses the grace of God. By that I mean cuts themselves off from the regular pattern of receiving grace through the word and through prayer and fellowship and things like that. The author mentions this root of bitterness. So this is another thing we're to see to it that no one has, that no one, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. First of all, what is a root of bitterness? And then explain how it just causes all kinds of trouble in the community of faith. Sure. I think that apart from the in interesting aspect of the phrase root of bitterness, if, we, if that were blank and we're trying to f fit something in there that would be theologically, would make sense theologically, we would just put the word sin in there, that sin does that. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no sin develops or grows up. No sin pattern develops that causes trouble and defiles many. So I think it's pretty safe to see a root of bitterness almost equivalent to some sin pattern. But let's honor the word bitterness. Uh, generally with bitterness, if there's a bitterness in someone, um, it's frequently unforgiveness, broken relationships, factions, divisions, things happen. Maybe failed expectations. Uh, some bitterness goes on there. And so the bitterness that comes uh, frequently, it's unforgiveness, that, that there's a hostility because someone got sinned against and they can't forgive. 
Um, or it could be just speaking more generally and saying just something that makes life bitter, uh, a bitter root. And so the idea of a root is, look, if you don't pull this thing up by the roots, it's going to grow up. It's going to cause trouble and defile many, as the text says. So let's not just nip it in the bud, but root it up out. Let's find out. So that's, you know, let's say it, it does tie to sin. Um, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. You could well imagine that obedience to that passage would exactly line up with what's commanded here. Like some, I, I've done something to offend somebody. I'm going to go make it right. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to ask forgiveness. I'm going to bring that brother or that sister around to a warm-hearted, reconciled relationship with me. And then I'm going to resume my, my offering to the Lord. So that'd be a good way to root up bitterness before it even starts. Yeah, I, I think this root of bitterness is huge. I think it, it creeps up so easily in, yeah. in people's lives. It creeps up in, in my life. It creeps up in many people I know. And it just, But these verses really help to, like you said, to uproot it. You, you read this and I wait a minute. I don't want to... I don't want to um, let this thing bear fruit and, and defile me and sully these relationships. Yeah, one of the ways that we found, I've been here shepherding um, this flock for over 20 years. And as people frequently have left the church but not left the area, you know, we've been grieved by that. We've wanted to find out, you know, have we done something wrong? Was there some way that we failed you? And in the times when people do have a negative feeling about the local church now, uh, there has been a mild level or even a strong level of bitterness that's grown up in them. Frequently, it's sins of omission. There were expectations, reasonable sometimes, expectations of Christian fellowship and care and concern that weren't met. And so we elders talk about the, the pattern of no one called, no one cared, no one came. You know, I went through this in my life and no one seemed to care at all. And so nobody there loves me. Nobody there cares. So I'm out. I'm gone. And so we need to kind of find the best we can to head that off at the pass and develop structural ministries in the local church that minister to people so people don't slip through the cracks, they're not lonely, their needs are being met. So that's one way that you try to obey this idea of a root of bitterness that grows up and defiles many. Verse 16 continues this, you know, kind of see to it that this doesn't happen. And he says that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. So can you first address why it's so important that the church is free from sexual immorality and why that's so important for holiness? But then talk more about Esau. I know we talked about him in chapter 11, but this kind of quintessential godless man and just what he did with his birthright and what that showed about him. Yeah, I mean, he brings up, it seems seems like out of nowhere, um, this idea of sexual immorality, but it's it's not. It's actually very much in context. There's the idea of a corporate holiness here a corporate community life, and he's bringing up sex. And sex is, and you know, we've been going through 1 Corinthians, and so there's multiple chapters on sexual immorality and impurity and the need for a holy marriage and how God has provided the gift of marriage, also the gift of singleness, 1 Corinthians 7. Just go through all of that. But, you know, as I was preaching through that, I just noted, and it's very clear, that sex is a, a terrible weakness in the citadel of, of the human soul. Imagine the, the human soul like, a, like a, a fortress, and Satan is besieging the fortress, assaulting it, tempting it to sin. And you could imagine um, all of the hellish 
forces that are besieging this this um, this walled fortress suddenly running around to a particular gate, one of the gates, and giving all of their attention to that gate, pounding on that gate and all that. It's because they perceive a weakness. Maybe it's splintering. Maybe someone left it open, uh, something like that. And just so much effort zeroing in on that one particular northwest gate, let's say. If you're the commander of the citadel, you're going to be, I, I'm going to give special attention. I'm going to put extra soldiers and archers over that gate and I'm going to protect it. Well, that's what sex is. It's clearly a weakness. We all struggle with it in various ways. And so the idea that see to it that no one is sexually immoral, what we need to do is teach holiness and sexuality, teach what the Bible says, help marriages to be healthy, help singles, both men and women, to behave in a healthy, a holy way with their bodies. Um, we need to teach this and, and address sin when it arises. So he, that's the commandment concerning sexual immorality. Yeah, I think that's huge for the Christian life. I was meditating yesterday on First Thessalonians, and it's such an encouraging letter from Paul to this church that's done so well, even though they're a young church in the faith. But then right in chapter 4, he tells them to you know, pursue sanctification. It's the will of God and see to it that there's no sexual morality. And I just thought it was very interesting that in the middle of this very encouraging letter, he's so thrilled about their faith that they're bearing persecution well. He wants to tell them about the end times, but he, he never neglects to mention the sexual immorality to, to be on guard against it. Yeah, it's a big deal. It really is. It's a you know, God meant uh, marital relations to be a tremendous blessing, um, but it's also a, a tremendous weakness. And so much grief and sorrow has come into lives because of um, adultery, uh, because of fornication, um, different aspects. So there's a clear call for sexual purity here. You were going to speak about Esau. Yeah, I want to say something about Esau. And we already mentioned him, as you said, uh, that Esau was the, the typical or the quintessential godless man, the man of, man of the world, the man of the flesh. Uh, we have no clear records of him being sexually immoral, so I don't know if it's like topic A, topic B here. Um, there's kind of a, an association almost here. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau. But, you know, it could be that Esau was not in any way godless, but, I mean, uh, sexually immoral, but was a godless man in that his God was his stomach, like Paul says in Philippians. He lived after his drives. So he might not have been sexually immoral, but not every godless person is sexually immoral uh, or sexually deviant. You know, there could be people that maintain certain levels of morality, but they're still, their God is their stomach. And so that's just a matter of earthly drives and desires. And so here's Esau, who for a single meal sold his birthright. In other words, he had zero interest in redemptive history. It didn't mean anything to him. The promises made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob just meant nothing to him. And so uh, he turned his back on it. He said to Jacob, you know, what good is my birthright to me? I'm dying of hunger, which he wasn't, I'm sure. And so just that godlessness, that, that earthly appetite, see to it that no one lives like that. You know, as you're explaining this, I'm realizing this, this great analogy with Esau that you mentioned it's such a small thing, a meal, and he traded his birthright for it. But that's essentially what Christians are doing. Not that you can lose your salvation, but when you turn after the world or something like to turn your back on God and trade away the kingdom of God for just simple pleasures that are so passing. It's, it's, it's exactly like Esau. Yeah, and it's clearly hard. It's hard to do. It's hard to live a self-controlled, godly life in which your bodily drives and desires are under control. It's, it's actually a constant fight. You think about all of the things that the body's driving you to do. 
um, to sleep, um, to eat, uh, to drink, um, to have sexual pleasure, or, or to be free from pain. And how if you take all of those to the nth degree, it absolutely leads you away from a, a sacrificial life of service to Christ. So if we're going to serve Christ, we have to deny the drives of the body and not give the body what it desires. And that's hard to do. That would be why self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Yeah, absolutely. What do you make of verse 17? I think for me and probably for many who have read it, it says some disturbing things. Mm. And I'll read it just so people can hear it again. He says, For you know that afterward when he, that's Esau, desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So I think the reason that many would think this is very disturbing is because, you know, we see that he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. But we know that Jesus says that all who come to me, I'll never cast out. Yeah. So what do you make of this verse, and how do you understand this, this chance to repent that Esau would have sought? Well, let's, let's try to identify the trouble, the problem. The problem is it, it portrays someone with tears coming down their face, pounding on the gates of heaven, begging to come in, and repentance and faith are essential, and those are the things that are denied. Like God's going to say, nope, I know what you want. I know you want repentance. I know you want faith, but I'm not going to give it to you. And so here's this drive coming from inside this individual, uh, seemingly a wonderful, good drive where he's pursuing repentance, but he can't find it because God won't grant it to him. Well, that, I think that's just a faulty way of understanding the verse. There may be an entirely different way to understand the verse, but let's stay with a kind of a standard understanding that it is his own repentance that he couldn't bring about. In that case, you could look at Judas who after betraying Jesus had a certain level of remorse and had tears and threw the money away, but he didn't repent. And repentance is essentially vertical. It's essentially God-centered. And he didn't go to God with his crime, with his great sin, um, but instead um, just felt horrible and terrible to the point of suicide. All right, so that would be uh, an idea like in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, where it talks about worldly sorrow uh, does not produce life. So it could be that Esau is displaying a kind of worldly sorrow, but it didn't touch the actual repentance uh, vertically toward God, where he's like, you know, I realize that by trading my birthright for a bowl of stew, I dis despised Almighty God. I've despised the kingdom of God. He just didn't think like that. So that, that'd be one way to explain it. Another way is that it's not really even his repentance that it's, that's being discussed. A more natural reading here is that it's really Isaac's um, change of mind that, that never came about. He went after his father, Isaac, to change his mind about the, the uh, blessing uh, of the firstborn. And so he pursued it with tears. Bless me, me too, my father. But Isaac would not change the decree and the prophetic words that had been spoken over him. So that would be another way to look at this verse. He could bring about no change of mind in Isaac concerning his own future because God had ordained it. And he had spoken that prophetic blessing, that his blessing would be away from the dew uh, and that he would serve his brother and his yoke would be on his neck, his brother's yoke. So he couldn't change that. Nothing was going to change it. Yeah, I really appreciate that last interpretation and it, it makes a lot of sense because that is what he sought. He wanted Isaac to change his mind. Yeah. And now, uh, which is, it's not going to happen. God had, God right. had declared it was through Jacob and not Esau. Yeah. So let's, but let's plug it back in. It's clearly written by the author of Hebrews to be a warning. 
And so look at what happened to Esau and how bitterly he regretted his life after the stomach. And so there are, I really believe, like Judas, there are people that reach a certain level of insight concerning their lives, that they've wasted their lives pursuing sex and pursuing food and pursuing drink. And they're not, it's not a Godward repentance. It's a deep, bitter regret and awareness that you've wasted it, that you've squandered everything and the time is gone. And sometimes God will give that, not in any way to redeem the individual, but also, to, uh, but even more to increase their suffering that it's a punishment, a judgment. It's like you, you realize now what's happened, don't you? You've lost it and you'll never get it back. And there's that bitter regret. We can't imagine that reprobate people don't have any deep, bitter regrets for their sin in this world and even weep over them. We actually see that's pretty common. When you're talking about the life of Esau too, though, um, I think at some point it seems he kind of moved on. You know, I, But by the time he meets Jacob, he's got 400 people. He's wealthy now. And uh, he doesn't say, hey, Jacob, I know that the blessing's with you. Can I serve under your tent? You know, he's like, nope, yeah. I'm, I'm gone. Pretty scary. When you think about it, he got what he wanted. And we know from Romans 1 that that may be clear indication of God giving him over. Right. That's this what is, I was getting at. Yeah. Exactly. I thought you were. Yeah. Oh, should have you, 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 you should have made the point. I love it. You were, yeah, sad. We know each other so well at this point. I knew what you were. Just that idea that someone could essentially yeah, receive what they wanted. And basically, so maybe there was a time where... He sought it with tears, but then afterwards he's like, no, I don't need that anymore. Yeah. I, I got my own kingdom now. Sure. And he is, yeah. he's away from the blessing of God forever. That's true. Yeah, and, and let's look at the context here. We're talking about Hebrew Christ, uh, Christians or professors of faith in Christ coming from the Jewish background who are on, under intense persecution to turn away from Christ, to forsake Christ as the Messiah, to say he's not the Messiah. Go back to Old Covenant Judaism. And we have to imagine earthly blessings would be part of the enticement, right? Yeah. We have to imagine that doing well in business, business connections, prosperity, you know, certainly at least you're not getting your, your possessions confiscated and you're not getting arrested. All you have to do is sign off on stamp, stamping on Jesus, trampling on Jesus, and then your life can really begin or, or, or be renewed. Um, and it's like, wow, that really is a bowl of soup right there. Um, the, the earthly benefits of forsaking Jesus. Do you have any final thoughts on these Verses before we end the podcast. Absolutely. I, I think we need to go back to the striving after holiness. It's relentless. We have to fight the good fight, finish the race, keep the faith. We need to run this race every day. And it is a race of holiness. And not just for us. We can't just think about ourselves. We need to help each other. Uh, we need to look out for each other, ask questions. Um, pair up men with men and women with women and have accountability partners and pray for each other and let's have interconnections in the local church heading toward holiness it's all about putting sin to death and being holy and not being a godless Esau well thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast please join us next time for episode 38 where we discuss Hebrews chapter 12 verses 18 through 24 and it's Mount Sinai versus Mount Zion the old covenant versus the new Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.